So, Sophia, Ethan, can you hear me out there? Okay. I think I remember to turn on record today, so that will be a plus for whoever <coughs> wants to watch this later, since I totally skipped that on Monday. I was so confused about how to get started, I didn't even remember to push the record button. So, um, dairy chemistry this morning. Let's see. We were doing a little refresher work. We've been, uh, I think we were talking about buffering is the last thing we finished up. Okay, so hopefully there's a few people out there yet. All right, there's a few of them over there in the sidebar. Okay, uh, we finished up, I believe, talking about PKAs, PKBs, which are a physical set of constants, a way that we can determine mathematically the buffer capacity of a solution. Unless you're really into physical chemistry, you're probably not going to do this for yourself very often, but it is out there and I just want you to be familiar that those uh, terms are out there. As we start looking at buffering capacities changes that occur in products that we can relate to what's in the milk. And clearly that is variable in milk because the mineral composition in milk is not stable. I mean, total minerals is pretty stable. About 0 0.7 to 0.72% of the total typically is minerals, but whether calcium, zinc, manganese, magnesium, iron, selenium, which of those elements are there as part of the minerals and in what composition, that's going to change. And as that changes, it will alter the buffering capacity of the milk. It will change the titration curves. It will change how long a culturing process might take if your endpoint that you're using as a marker is a certain pH well your culture may have to grow longer to overcome the buffering capacity of the milk before that pH finally moves so that's one of the things we need to consider buffering capacity in milk the mathematics behind it is a pKa pKb look it up for yourself when you're bored Right? I just wanted you to know that that's a way to go into determining buffering capacity 
of a system. In MELCs, all buffering is not equal because the individual mineral components do vary. So, new thing to talk about this morning, solubility. What do you think solubility is, Laura? How much of something will dissolve into a solution? Does that seem logical? Yeah, that's basically where we're going, okay? Solubility is relatively complex. Not all things that we put in contact with the solute, in this case generally water, actually go into the solution, right? If you were to take a glass with water in it, 100 mils of water, and put in a spoonful of sugar and stir it, what happens to it? It dissolves, it dissociates. You cannot freely see the sugar present, right? But if we were to take that same glass with 100 mils of water and put some vegetable oil in there and stir it, what happens? It floats back up to the top. It's not going to be soluble in an aqueous phase. If we had put 100 mils of ether in that glass or that beaker and poured in some vegetable oil and stirred it in, what would happen? It would dissociate, it would dissolve depending upon the solvent, right? So certain substances will dissolve based on the solute that we have. What's the most common solute in a dairy system? Water. So when we talk about solubilities, we're usually going to be worrying about how things behave in water, but we need to remember from an analytical standpoint, sometimes the way that we can find something like how much fat is there is to change the solvent we're using. We can extract the fat out of the system by changing the solvent, right? So solubility is basically a dissociation of a given material into a given solute. If it's truly soluble, you will not be able to immediately identify it within that overall solution. It's dissociated, it's, I mean, put in some salt, it dissociates completely. You're not going to find it as salt. It's going to be distributed throughout the whole. You put in some table sugar, same thing's gonna happen. What if I did put in some lactose? Would it dissociate? Would it go into the solution? Yes. But would it go in at the same quantities as table sugar? No. So solubilities, the basic concept of solubility, and then we're gonna to start to talk about how much of a substance can go in there. 
what's the level of solubility, okay? In a dairy system, as I said, we're usually worried about the aqueous phase, water being our primary solvent or the solute, as we're talking about any of these systems. But when we want to start to fractionate or differentiate from analysis, we may choose to pick a different solvent, perhaps alcohol or an ether. Ether extraction historically is probably one of the most accurate methods of determining fat content in any substance. Do we do ether extractions commonly? What might be the drawback from doing ether extractions on a constant basis? Is ether flammable? Is ether explosive in the right concentration? You can blow your lab up if you're not careful. Well, history says that several places in time have done that in trying to determine the amount of fat or lipid materials in a substance, whether it's milk, whether it's a feedstuff. But that was a very good way because of the solubility of determining what was there, okay? So we're going to be using different solvents for analysis, but most often when we're talking about solubility as a whole, in dairy, we're concerned about it in aqueous phase. Solubility is reported in levels. Things are fully soluble, minimally soluble not soluble, right? If we say something is insoluble, it goes into a solution at a concentration less than 0 .2, 0 0.02 moles per liter. That's a pretty small number. If we can't even get that much to go into the solvent, we consider it to be insoluble, right? When we're doing solubilities, there's a couple of things we have to always consider. Would a solubility make any sense if I didn't have control of the quantity of solute that I was trying to put something into? I need to have a basis whether I'm putting it into 10 milliliters, 100 milliliters, a liter. I have to have consistency or I can't compare anything, right? What other characteristics of the solvent might I need to be able to start to determine saturation, temperature, right? If I did my solubilities at 10 degrees C, 20 degrees C, 
50 degrees C, would they be the same? No, they're going to be different. So I have to have some fixed conditions when I'm trying to compare things apples to apples. Typically that fixed condition is 100 mils of the solvent and most commonly the temperature choice is 20 degrees C. 68 degrees Fahrenheit if you're needing to have a conversion. That gives us a fairly steady set of numbers that we can look at. If we consider that 100 mils of solvent water at 20 degrees C and we start adding our solute, we can determine how much will actually dissociate, dissolve into and become part of the solution. There is a maximum amount. When it's something like alpha lactose, it's only going to be about seven grams per hundred mils of water. When it's something like table sugar, it's closer to 120 grams per hundred mils of water. Vastly different. So we have to make sure we understand that, that concept of how does something go into solution and how much of it will go into solution before we start talking about how dairy products are going to have certain interactions. In general, in general, when you warm the solution up, you can get more of the solute into the solvent the substance you're trying to put in there. In general, that's true. Thing like sugar, salt, right? You can put more in if the temperature of the solution is higher. There are, however, some instances where that does not hold true. And those are the ones we tend to care about. Typically, the outliers are the ones that are interesting. The outliers are the ones that create the issues for us. Changes in process, changing anything else. The outliers are where we end up with challenges. When a substance does not increase the amount that can go into the solution when the temperature is increased, it's referred to as inversely soluble. Okay. The three compounds, the three elements, most notably found in a dairy product that are inversely soluble include oxygen, carbon dioxide, and calcium. Is there ever any oxygen around? Now, if, if this one makes it easier for you, any of you ever gone trout fishing? 
Anybody ever go bullhead fishing? Do you find bullheads and trout in the same place? Uh, the answer is not. Why? There. One needs much higher levels of oxygen to survive than the other. Trout need more oxygen than bullheads. So what kind of water do you think you might find trout in? Warm water or cold water? Cold. The colder the water is, the more oxygen will stay dissolved in it, the more is available to the fish. As your prairie potholes in Minnesota and South Dakota warm up in the summer, the fish species that can survive are those that can tolerate lower oxygen levels because less oxygen will be held in the water because it's at a higher temperature. Anybody ever consume a carbonated beverage? When you first get that carbonated beverage out, does it have any fizz? If you leave it out on the countertop for an hour and come back, does it have the same amount of fizz? What happened? The carbon dioxide is inversely soluble. As the solution warms up, it has less capacity to hold onto the CO2 and it volatilizes off. So if we wanted to carbonate something, can we carbonate it at an elevated temperature or at a low temperature? Has to be at a low temperature, right? So the outliers are the ones that create some interest. Calcium is going to be our savior and our nightmare at the same time in a dairy product. It probably causes greater issues than any other individual substance because it is inversely soluble. So we're going to spend a lot of time when we get to the minerals portion of this class talking about what calcium can do for us and the headaches it creates for us because it's inversely soluble. In most or in many dairy processes, we heat the milk, right? Quite often that's almost the first thing we're gonna do. When we heat the milk, what do we drive out? We make the calcium less stable, we drive out the oxygen, and we drive out the CO2. In some of those instances, that's a good thing. If we can decrease the amount of oxygen dissolved in the milk, we also decrease the chances of oxidative reactions occurring for product degradation. There's less oxygen there to have that occur. 
right? Drive out the CO2. We can change the pH of the system. Because when carbon dioxide is dissolved in an aqueous solution, it depresses the pH. It becomes more acidic. When we warm the milk up, we change the pH. But as we warm that milk up and the calcium becomes less soluble, less stable, especially when we're going to make a product such as a UHT shelf-stable beverage, maybe a, a coffee creamer, something of that nature, that calcium does not want to stay where it originally was. And that becomes an issue for long-term storage of our product. Because if the calcium doesn't stay where it was, it might lead to gelation of product, flaking, flocculation, lots of other characteristics of instability. When you put your creamer in your coffee, there's a characteristic pattern as it distributes itself. Well, if you disturb the calcium solubility, it changes the way it distributes. It will feather. It will almost look like little flakes floating around in your coffee because of the calcium stability related to the heat treatment we did. So we're gonna keep going back to that and going back to that. Saturation is that point where we can't get any more of a substance into the solution at the given temperature, okay? That's a fairly reasonable definition, I hope. So if I wanted to try and get more of a substance into the solution, what do I need to do? I have to heat it up, typically, right? So if I heat it up, if I say go from 20 degrees C to 50 degrees C, I can increase the amount that's in that solution. What happens when I start to cool it back down from 50 to 20? For a portion of time, it becomes what's called supersaturated. It's very unstable when it's supersaturated. Almost anything that we do will trigger a precipitation of whatever the substance was that was beyond its saturation point to return to the saturation level because that's where it wants to be. If, for example, that substance was lactose, that we could put more into the solution at 50 degrees than we could at 20, and then we cool it down, when it comes out of the solution, it will come out as crystals, crystals of lactose. Once lactose is present in crystalline form, it does not like to 
dissociate and dissolve very well again. We end up with grittiness, sandiness in our product because we didn't watch how we went to saturation at a point and then supersaturation followed by precipitation. It's all temperature dependent on what we're dealing with. Supersaturation, holding more of the substance than normally would be possible at a given temperature. It's almost impossible to supersaturate a solution just by adding material. Typically, how we're going to accomplish it, if we want to, is to add at an increased temperature and then bring it down. Why do we want to be able to do that? Commercially, if we're trying to recover and fractionate the lactose portion out of a whey stream, that's our primary approach. Supersaturate the solution at an elevated temperature and control the cooling curve so you can harvest the lactose back out. But if we don't understand the concepts of saturation and supersaturation, when we get to that commercial concept of what else is going on in lactose, lactose production based on pH, based on temperature, total solids in solution, all of those things, it's not gonna make any sense. Okay, that make it reasonable? Lactose production, concentrated milks, evaporated milks, even membrane concentration, all of those processes that we're going to undertake in a manufacturing facility will start to get us into changes in levels of or concentrations of any given substance in solution. And as we start hitting saturation or supersaturation, we then have to be prepared for that material to come out. If we don't want it to come out or separate itself from the rest of the solution, we need to understand where those saturation points are. Okay, I need to find another set of slides. When you saturate, when you supersaturate, that is typically your method of harvesting. Okay, now.
Am I back to lipids on the screen out there? Good. I, I hope I did it right. Okay, the lipids of milk. Common terminology, we throw around the term fat, right? Sometimes we'll talk about oils. Do we ever talk about milk oil? No, we talk about milk fat. Sometimes we talk about butter fat, right? Fats, oils, waxes, phospholipids, sphingomyelins, all of those substances fall under a bigger category known as lipids. And there are several of these smaller items present in milk. They're essential. They're going to have a great impact on the function of milk. So I can't just say the fats in milk although that's gonna be about 97% of what we're talking about, it's not the whole. So trying to be true to what's here, we're talking about the lipids in milk. So what is a lipid? It's a biomolecule, insoluble in water. We've basically learned that over time. You, fats, oils tend to be immiscible. They don't go into any sort of a solution if water is the solvent, right? Can be extracted from a cell using some type of an organic solvent, whether that's something like xylene or petroleum ether or ethyl ether. You could even use something like gasoline if you wanted. But I wouldn't recommend it for an analytical tool because you're probably going to have uh, be overcome by fumes and pretty good chance of blowing your uh, lab up. But we can extract lipid material from other materials. You can even use things such as chloroform based on its low polarity as a solvent. Probably a good idea not to use that unless you like to sleep during your analysis, right? But could be done. Lipids encompass a large number of different categories. The fats, in dairy, the fats are probably where we're gonna spend most of our time. Oils. When we talk about lipid material from plant-based sources, quite often we refer to them as oils, primarily because they remain liquid at room temperature. The lipids we obtain from a corn plant tend to be free-flowing at room temperature. The lipids that we obtain and consolidate from milk, well, they can be flowing if you look at cream, but when we concentrate them further and we get to something like butter, are they free-flowing? They become semi-solid. Fats have different melting points 
and are more likely to become semi-solid or solid at room temperature than an oil. Waxes, waxes are hugely complex molecules, not all linear, quite often branch chain, and we're gonna, you know, think of a beehive. Bees create this substance to create a structural space for all of the caretaking that goes on within a hive. It's a wax. That base material is still a lipid. Phospholipids, we're going to talk about those, tend to be membrane formers. Structural components in cells, structural components protecting the rest of the fat from the remainder of the solution. The sterols, things like cholesterol, those are part of the lipid family. The carotenoids, things that are leading into substances like vitamin A and vitamin E, vitamin D. They're lipid-soluble vitamins. They fall into that category of the carotenoids. Okay? All of these substances at the beginning are biomolecules extractable using organic solvents of low polarity. Typically, in milk, we're going to be dealing almost all of our time with those substances which would be classified as fats. In some cases, if we were to refine our milk obtained or dairy obtained material, and we look at a substance that's primarily unsaturated in its fatty acid side chains, it can become much more liquid at room temperature. You could almost consider it to be an oil, but typically in milk, we're gonna call it a fat. The whole category, lipids. So why, why does your system have fat? Some of us carry around more of this than others. We are ready for the emergency situation when we don't get fed. Fats are your biological system's energy reserve. <laughs> Fats are the most energy dense or contain the highest caloric value of any of the biomolecules. So your system creates some when it has intake of more energy than it needs at the time. If it has more energy than it needs, but it doesn't know when its next meal is coming, what's the smart thing to do? Put some away in savings, right? That's what fats are supposed to be. They're the savings account for energy. So 
that's why they exist. Yes, you can get some energy from a protein. You can get energy from carbohydrates. But if you want to store energy, typically we put it away as a fat. So when you think about milk, what's the initial purpose for milk? It's to feed the neonate of the species, right? Calf is born. Is it going to be able to eat grain and forages immediately? No. Its digestive tract isn't set up yet. It needs a way to bring in some energy. Okay? The fat portion is there to sustain that calf, that kid goat, whatever it happens to be, until its next meal arrives. The lactose is in there to give it enough energy in that 15, 20 minute interval right at the beginning when it gets fed that it can do lots of processes. It can get up, move around, whatever. It can spend some time working and building proteins and all. But if the time between one meal and the next starts to drag on too long, it needs to kick into its energy reserves. So the initial way the system came up with that, we have fractions that are consumed nearly immediately and some that will take longer to consume so that they stretch out the total amount of energy there until the next time we get food. For inconsistencies, you know, if I get fed every two hours, then I probably don't need a lot of fat in my diet. But if I get fed once a day, I'm probably going to need some or I'm going to have spikes and crashes in the way my system is trying to function. Right? So that's why fat exists. We can't do away with it entirely. Now maybe we, some of us have too much, but there is such thing as too little also. Whether we're talking about an oil or a fat, which are the two largest categories of the lipids, they all start from the same starting point. They start from what is known as glycerol. Okay? Now, glycerol is a simple three-carbon molecule, a three-carbon chain. And it will have attached to it Typically, glycerol has three hydroxyl groups. Wherever those hydroxyl groups exist is where we can attach what's called a fatty acid or a carboxylic acid ester, 
fatty acids easier to say, right? We attach it to the glycerol and we start to build a lipid, okay? But all lipids, I mean all fats, all oils, start from that same common point of the glycerol molecule, the three carbon chain, three hydroxyl groups that can be substituted and attached for fatty acids, right? That attachment of a fatty acid at each of those hydroxyl group points to the glycerol collectively is known as a glyceride. Fats are triacial glycerols, meaning they have three fatty acids attached to the glycerol. If we had just one or two, we would call it a monoglyceride or a diglyceride. But fats in general are triacial glycerols, they're glycerides. They will have three carboxylic acid esters attached. And what makes them unique in dairy is that almost always those three side chains will be different attached to the glycerol each and every time. Vegetable sourced fats tend to be uniform distribution of the carboxylic acid esters attached. Animal-based tend to be variable, okay? Animal fat has more variation, more uniqueness in its characteristics because of the variability in the attachment of the different carboxylic acid esters to the glycerol. Vegetable fats are more uniform, more consistent because the carboxylic acids that are attached are more commonly the same. There may be only two or three of them that are used instead of 15 or 20. Okay. I'm going to stop there for today. We'll get back into structural chemistry of a lipid on, what is today? Is today Wednesday? On Friday then. I don't know what day of the week it is. All right, see if I can figure out how to turn this thing off. Hey, Howard, um, just next time you write on the board, could you write in like black Expo marker instead of blue? Sophia, he can't hear us. Oh, gosh. 